Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin, talking to you from Chicago, Illinois. I have my uh, co-hosts with me today, Jim Marty and uh, Rob Hunt. Uh, it's an exciting day for us on the music scene. Uh, we have lots to talk about. Uh, most significantly, we'll get to it in one minute, Jim uh, is going to give us a review of the Bob Weir Wolf Brothers shows from Red Rocks, which he attended, and uh, perhaps along the way give all of us a few pointers for how to better enjoy our Red Rocks experience. And uh, Rob has some updated uh, cannabis news we'll get to, and then we're going to, uh, for our Mar- uh, for our Grateful Dead stuff today, uh, we are going to be discussing the Grateful Dead show from June 23, 1974, at the High Life Fronton in Miami, Florida, including what the hell is a High Life Fronton and why were the Grateful Dead playing there, um, as well as lots of other good things about the show. So uh, lots of good stuff today, folks. Anyone listening to us on Clubhouse, welcome. We're glad to have you aboard. Um, So team, here we go. Um, Rob, let's start with you. Tell us what's going on in the marijuana world. There was a, uh, a, a big purchase lately. What can you tell us about it? Uh, yeah, Larry, there's actually a pretty decent-sized transaction announced uh, this week. As you know, every week right now, uh, M&A and cannabis is going full tilt. But the most recent one to get announced was uh, Columbia Care buying California's own Medicine Man. For those of you familiar with Medicine Man, they've been around for about 12 years now. Uh, Andy Williams and uh, Sally Vanderveer started the company quite a while back. And they're actually, I think, the first ones that were featured in the original TV show about cannabis called Pop Barons, if, uh, if everyone remembers that one. So this is a, a relatively decent-sized deal. I think that um, the total consideration on the transaction is you know, north of $40 million, uh, $8.4 million of it being provided in cash, with the remainder being provided in stock with a, a nice earn-out potential on there as well. But it, it now makes it so that Columbia Care has a pretty strong position in the California market because this is their second acquisition after acquiring the Green Solution earlier, um, actually, I guess, late last year. So with these two uh, groups, I think that you know, Medicine Man has 350,000 square feet of cultivation and four retail stores, and then the Green Solution has you know, a whole host of stores. So if you were to say, you know, who's the largest right now in Colorado, um, you know, it's now kind of a three-way race, I think, between LiveWell, Native Roots, and, uh, and Columbia Care with this acquisition. Jim, what can you tell us about it? Are you hearing anything about this? Yeah, I've done some work with the Green Solution over the years, uh, the Spidell brothers. Um, one update, I believe tomorrow, um, the Supreme Court may decide to take on their 280E case. So they've been oh, wow. uh, petitioning uh, through the court system um, with uh, James Thorburn as the attorney. Um, he's had a lot of um, failures, um, but he's very persistent. And it uh, looks like he might actually get us a hearing at the Supreme Court on 2EDE. So we might hear something on that uh, yet this week. Okay. And that's probably uh, just about time. Uh, you know, I understand, Jim, that it's it, the, the 2EDE evolves out of the fact that marijuana is a Schedule One controlled substance and, and all of that kind of stuff. But as we see these types of uh, mergers and acquisitions, it seems like every week that we're on, Rob has another two or three to tell us about. Uh, they're all going for large numbers. This this isn't just a little uh, mom and pop sale from one person to another. Do you see that Congress eventually steps in and looks at this and says, this is real business now. We can't keep interfering with real business by by charging these ridiculous tax rates that throws the entire market out of whack. How, how does that tie into this as a, as a whole? Well, there's several moving parts to that. Um, I have not seen any 
anything or any ray of hope in this Congress that they're even going to discuss cannabis. And um, on the other hand, um, on profitability, there's two things going on. Uh, these deals like we're talking about today, Medicine Man and the Green Solution, you know, a lot of these players are just going for top line and not that concerned about their bottom line. Now that said, in spite of not being able to deduct some of your expenses, and it is some, not all, um, you can be very, very profitable in this business, even though you can't deduct all your deductions. For example, and it's been proven by myself many times in IRS audits, you can deduct all your cost of production. Anything related to producing inventory is deductible. So your cultivation rent, your cultivation labor. If you're a cultivator, 2ED doesn't really affect you that much. If you're a retailer, it does. Retail rent, retail labor, advertising, all your retail expenses are not deductible. So you have to have enough margin. You have to mark the product up enough that you can pay tax on your gross profit, not your net income like any other business, and still make a profit. Not everyone does it, but it can be done. So, so one thing I'll say about that is that, you know, obviously in the public market, it's a little bit different than what people experience in the private market where you're only as good as the capital you have on hand on your balance sheet. But in the public market, you take a company like Columbia Care, who in trailing 12 months revenue did, I think, $239 million in rev last year. But as far as, you know, net back to the shareholders, they're at negative $106 million. So you look at that and go, okay, you know, this company's not making money at all and it's not going to be profitable for some time. Even with these acquisitions, you know, acquiring Green Solutions, Medicine Man, or any of the other acquisitions or any of the other CapEx spends they've done. Uh, ultimately, you know, kind of once you've hit the point of being north of a billion dollars right now as a cannabis company, it doesn't really make that much difference anymore because these companies now are able to go out to the market and do bought deals where they can raise $100 million, $200 million literally overnight as long as their market cap is large enough that even with like, you know, some diluted financing like that, they will get it. So if, if you look at who's actually profitable, I think the only group that actually really truly turned a profit last year was truly about a Florida um, you know, and even companies that are really large, you know, call it Cureleaf, who'll be the first one to do a billion dollars in annual revenue this year, or GTI, who's going to be about 900 million in annual revenue. Those companies, you know, if you listen to their quarterly um, uh, earnings reports, their CEOs will tell you flat out that they have no interest right now in trying to turn a profit because A, the market still is rewarding them for growth, and B, it's, you know, as fast as they can plant flags they are, and C, they can work this amazing arbitrage between, you know, what they're trading for as far as a multiple to EBITDA versus what the acquisitions they're making are. So if they're out there, like this Medicine Man deal was valued at 4.5 times uh, 2021 projected EBITDA. But if you look at the, uh, the, the EBITDA multiple that Columbia Care is trading at, it's you know, north of 20 times. So if they can go out there and, and trade at one price and, and then immediately go out and you know, buy other groups for one-fourth or one-fifth or one-sixth of their trading multiple, um, you know, they'll do that all day long and, until someone says, hey, we're no longer going to give you guys new rounds of financing. So you know, watch the space. Watch the space uh, closely right now, because turning a profit isn't isn't where it's at. It's you know, can you get your company to be north of a billion dollar market cap? And if you can, can I raise two hundred million dollars at the drop of a hat? And and that's what's happening. Amazon lost money on every book they sold, and now look at them. They're flying to the moon, literally. Right, uh, Rob. Let me ask you this. I mean, I. I... For guys like me who, you know, have a strong interest, obviously, in the cannabis industry and all of that, but, you know, I, I'm not particularly known for my uh, my skills and knowledge of numbers. Um, but nevertheless, when I hear, you know, what we're talking about, the, the thought that starts to creep into my mind is, are we at the end or close to the end of the mom and pop cannabis operation in this country? Are we, I mean, with numbers like this, 
can anybody really afford to try and, and go it alone and, 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 and keep up with this crowd? Look, in, in the limited license states, the mom and pops don't even really exist to begin with. You know, you talk about the uh, the northeastern states, a state like New York, there's no way to even get in that market unless you're well capitalized when you first, you know, put out your application. But when you start getting into the, the states that are more sort of free market economies, you know, the Colorados, Californias, Washingtons, Oregons, can you be a mom and pop? Sure, but you, you have to, you know, sort of know what you're getting yourself into. If you're going to go out there and try to raise a bunch of investment capital and promise your investors you're going to show a great ROI that you know, it's going to 10x their money over the next five years. That's largely not going to happen at this point uh, unless you, you know, bolt onto something significantly larger. But, you know, if I were to use a comp, Larry, you know, look at the uh, the beverage industry. And there's, you know, still a lot of small-time uh, fruit producers for the wine industry that eke out a really nice living, but they're, they're not trying to be a, a mega group. And there's plenty of small microbreweries that if they open up a little restaurant and it's a brewery slash restaurant, you know, they, they might clear four or 500K a year, and that's just great for a couple. That's, you know, that's what they're trying to do. But can you be a small independent canvas company in this age of M&A, in this age of behemoths, you know, kind of emerging? Not really. Like, if you've got ambition for something greater, uh, either right now you should be looking to, uh, to bolt on other groups to you and say, okay, let's go out and try to, you know, make a go of this ourselves. Or you need to start putting yourself in play to say, okay, if I'm a standalone cultivator or standalone um, uh, extractor or a standalone retailer, you know, you have to be part of something bigger. Because if you're not, you're just going to get absolutely, like, railroaded coming up here real soon. It's already starting to happen in, in, in a lot of the bigger um, markets. So my question is, and I realize that this is, you know, maybe maybe a little too uh, idealistic for the world and everything, but do we lose something as an industry by, you know, I, I know any industry could say that, and I and I, I accept your examples. You're absolutely right about microbrewers and, and people like that who can always carve out a little bit of a niche if they're really willing to take the time and the effort to do it and, and come up with a quality product. But somehow I, I, I think of the cannabis industry as really being a lot about these little independent dispensaries that you find people who have their own little grows. And it's almost like driving through Napa, right? You, you stumble upon somebody you didn't even know existed. And all of a sudden, you know, they become your favorite, uh, they become your favorite source. And maybe, you know, again, it's just being a little too idealistic, but I, I really love that about the cannabis industry. And, you know, I'm hoping that it can be preserved on some level while recognizing that, you know, big money and, and big stuff is, is good for all of us too. Yes, if you have a 5,000, 7,500 square foot cultivation, it's going to be very difficult to, to make a living out of that. Uh, on the other hand, you can still be small and have, you know, 20, 30, 50,000 square feet of cultivation and be taking home a couple of million dollars. We have, it's the exception, it's not the rule, but we have plenty of clients with a $20 million top line that, that take home two, three, four million dollars after taxes. But, you know, they have a good accountant. <laughs> yeah. And, and look, you, you can even do it with something that's smaller than that. I mean, to Jim's point, you know, first of all, cultivation gives you the best tax treatment by far. You know, you're able to deduct almost everything. So as we're talking about, you know, Jim's um, view as far as looking at this from a tax perspective, if you're a standalone retailer and you've just got one retail store, it's near impossible to make a, a go of it. If you're a standalone cultivator, even if you've got a six or 7,000 square foot cultivation and you're growing straight fire then you can still make a go of it. I mean, I'll give you an example. I just funded uh, Josh D. Farms, so big shout-out to Josh D. out there, and anyone that knows him knows that he was kind of the father of the OG Kush in California. Just Josh D.'s name attached to a product is going to guarantee that as a branded product, he's selling everything in eights. There is no bulk going out of that facility. It's going you know, to a very small curated group of, uh, of dispensaries that will pay a, a certain price per wholesale eighth that we know that you know before it's even produced, it's 100% spoken for. 
So can you have a boutique grow like that and still, you know, do okay? Sure. I mean, is, is that the end game? Is that, you know, what, what Josh wants to do with this brand and what we want to do, you know, to, to support him? Definitely not. But, you know, can you make, uh, you know, a couple million bucks a year if you're, you know, one of the best growers in the game or one of the best genetics guys in the game? I mean, there's a handful of people that if they put out a grow just based on the, uh, the cuts they have, they're going to get the business. And, uh, you know, if, if you're just going to go out there and say, I'm going to open a 6,000 square foot cultivation and you're a mediocre grower, don't bother. You know, it's, there's no way to make a living. You see, you see a lot of business models like that in Oklahoma with very, very small five, 10,000 square foot cultivation. Uh, very difficult. <clears throat> but people jump into it every day. You're right, and they still will. And, and, and it's what keeps us in business. And Jim, as long as I practice, I will never forget uh, your line at the uh, uh, 2013 MJ Biz when you told us all that it was a cornucopia of billing. And I had never heard the word used that way before. And I stopped and I thought about it. And to this day, you're right. There are still people that want to come in. They're willing to pay an hourly rate to get advice to figure out how to do it. And I say thank God for them. And I, I hope that those people are always incentivized, uh, you know, to try at least, you know, to try and make a go of it, whether they can ultimately get there or not remains to be seen. But, you know, I, I like that idea that, you know, somebody who's always had good experience with marijuana and wants to share it, if they know how to do it and get lucky, maybe they can go out and do it. So... We will see. And again, not talking in my own self-interest, but these deals that we're talking about, you know, the legal fees, the accounting fees are in the hundreds and hundreds of, if not the millions of dollars. Yeah. It's not uncommon for us to get a, a fee of over $100,000 on some of these M&A deals that we help with. So it, um, it's, a, it's an industry. It's a primary industry. And there's a, what's say about primary industries, for every dollar in the industry, there's a spinoff dollar or, or $3 of spinoff to the landlords, to the people who work there, to the lawyers, the accountants. So, yeah, my prediction is, well, it's not even a prediction. I believe the cannabis industry right now is uh, over about $100 billion a year, about the same as beer. And right now it's about 25 30% legal, 70% illegal. By 2030, I think it'll be completely legal, and all of us in the industry are on that bus. Yeah. Well, that's a great way to look at it. It's interesting you say there, Jim, because you know I have consulting calls all the time with like major investment banks that are you know hiring me to sort of talk them through what the industry looks like today and what they can expect. And a lot of the times, these guys, because they're not able to invest directly in cannabis, are trying to invest in the ancillary businesses. So whether that's GrowGen or HydroFarm or Sunlight Supply, which is now you know Scott's Miracle Grow, or some of these others. They all believe that because the, uh, the industry has a CAGR that's going from $30 billion to $100 billion in sales on the legal side, that they think these ancillaries are going to you know, have that same sort of growth. And I keep explaining to them that the cannabis industry as an overall industry is already built. You know, like there's, there's already growers that are supporting right. all of the illicit side as well. Right. So you're not selling more nutrient. You're not selling more lights. You're not selling more other stuff. Like, okay, when you build a new facility, like when you, when you open up a new state, like let's say, you know, when Virginia goes and Northam signs the bill, you know, yeah, there'll be, you know, guys like Jushi and Terrison will be building facilities there, uh, and that will be a great opening order. But as far as the recurring revenue, that, that, that new facility now takes away from someone that's in Humboldt or Mendocino or, or Trinity that's already there supporting that part of the market that no longer has a job. So, you know, there is no massive CAGR on the ancillary side that, that you're seeing in the legal side. And I think it's lost in a lot of people. This is truly an orderly migration from illicit to legal that, you know, isn't just supporting winners. There's a lot of losers that happen in the process, especially in Washington, Oregon, and California. Yes. And the big elephant in the room is cross-border traffic. So right now, every state's a silo. If that changes, 
Katie bar the door. You're looking at R.J. Reynolds type of industries. Yes. But, but, but that's only true on the legal side. On the illicit side, you know, F-150's been loaded up for years going from California to the East Coast. And that's not changing. You know, it's certainly not changing now. That doesn't change until all 50 states are legal when there's no need for someone to load up a uh, vehicle. And if they do, it's because California produces better weed than, let's say, Massachusetts does. You know, and at that point, it's, it, it's um, you know, supply and demand and who can grow at the best price and the best quality. So ultimately, you know, interstate commerce, when it does happen legally, um, you know, obviously we're all waiting to see what, what that looks like. And I don't think any of us, you know, can pull out a crystal ball and really say definitively. But I think Larry and I would say as the attorneys in the room, that's certainly going to involve a lot of dormant commerce clause issues that we have got to, you know, sort out of, you know, how do you get across state lines and, you know, do these guys put silos up around their existing markets? So it's um, it, a lot to be seen, but know that the, the, the outlaws out there, they've never cared about a state border and they never will. Yeah, agreeing with what you're saying, Rob, uh, we have clients up in, uh, or associates, I should say, because they don't file tax returns. Uh, they, they ship a lot of product and they call it hemp. Whatever it takes. This is fascinating as always, and um, I am enjoying it. But I think that I certainly know that I and perhaps our listeners would like to hear from Jim uh, because he was lucky enough last week to be, were you at both nights at Red Rocks, Jim? No, I only got to Wednesday night. Okay. Um, but I did... Um, get to spearhead and uh, michael frianti on saturday night so i got to two red rock shows Excellent. in a few days <clears throat> and um you know they say that we're at three-quarter capacity but boy I sh- you, and you saw my pictures it sure looked pretty full to the top to me for both shows and uh yeah. fabulous fabulous bob weir show i mean i've heard from you know deadheads who have seen 200 dead shows saying it's the best bobby show they've ever seen i'm sorry were you there the night that they played the terrapin suite Yes. Okay. Yeah, they actually, there was, they did it both nights. Um, there was actually more repeats than normal because it was a, um, a couch tour as well. So you could do a pay-per-view at home. And uh, above this, uh, in the audience on the side, there was a big professional boom with a high-quality camera. And so if you've seen some of the video from those shows at Red Rocks and, and um, Vale as well, because... Um, Listening to the uh, Tales from the Golden Road, uh, I believe they're going to make a DVD out of these four shows in Colorado. So, uh, so there was more repeats than normal because of the uh, they want to be able to edit those for a DVD. But um, uh, the estimated profit, I mean, talk about liftoff! Oh my goodness! And the Cassidy to end the first set, um, we just roared. And the, and. I don't know how Bob did it, and I guess Greg, I forget his last name, from the Wolf Brothers, plays Pedal Steel. But the sound coming off of that stage, and I, my son and I were sixth row center. I'll tell you about that in a minute. And um, the sound coming off of that stage was just crystal clear. And just, I, I've, best sound I've heard in a long, long time. They really put some effort into it. And uh, Jeff Comenti got a lot of big uh, piano solos. It was just and, and we just roared at every song. It was so good to be back, especially Michael Friante too. A few nights earlier, just the joy of being back at live concerts. Um, I have friends in New York City, uh, Wall Street, dead ahead, and they're not opening up at all. There's no Broadway shows right now. There's they're wondering, you know, how they're going to do City Field this fall. They couldn't believe the crowd that we had at, at Red Rocks. So, um, but you know. We're getting vaccinated. Our hospitalizations in Colorado are down to a couple hundred. That's what I watch. Um, so the trend is good. Live music's back. But how do I get to be in the sixth row center at Red Rocks on a general admission show? So um, I, 
I'm giving away inside information here. I probably shouldn't be saying this, but uh, the way I do it is I cannot get to the show early enough. Um, I cook breakfast and head to Red Rocks. Um, this particular day we, for an uh, 8 o'clock show, we left my house at 3 o'clock. We're on the steps at 4. I, I bring a picnic lunch. Uh, we bring chairs and a cooler of beer. We sit there for two or three hours. The, um, we're at the top of the stairs on the north, um, lower north stairs where the restrooms are right as you go in. So they let us use the restrooms all afternoon. And um, then what we call it the first consolidation as the stairs line up. And this, by the time it's an hour or two before the show, the stairs are full all the way to the bottom. But we're in the top 10 people at the top of the stairs because we get there that early. And we take our cooler and our chairs back to the car. Uh, we get there so early that I park right at the bottom of the stairs. See, I'm giving away all this inside information. Now my parking spot's not going to be there next time. And... Uh, yeah, we pack up our, our chairs and our, our cooler, put them in the car, get back to the stairs where we leave somebody to hold our place. And uh, Jack, Marty, and I were the first 10 people into the into the show. And we get our pick of, should we be in row five or six? Uh, which one, five or six center, which one has the best view? I like actually being back a row or two because we get a little better visual on the stage. So that's how we do Red Rocks. As I learned that from, you know, my, my nieces uh, at Michael Friante, they said, Uncle Jim... How many times have you been to Red Rocks? And I thought about it for a second. I said, you know, it's in the hundreds. Didn't miss a dead show. I missed one dead show there between 1983 and 1987 when they stopped playing Red Rocks. No, that's great. And look, you know, it's like we talked about living in Mill Valley and, you know, always being able to pop into the Sweetwater Saloon. If you live in Denver, it, it you know, it's something you have to take advantage of and, and or Boulder. The- well, the show was so good. I actually thought about so he, So Bob did Tuesday, Wednesday at Red Rocks, a day off on Thursday and then Friday, Saturday at the Gerald Ford Amphitheater in Vail. I was tempted to go up there because the show was so good at Red Rocks. I'm glad I didn't because it turns out that amphitheater only holds 2,500 people. So it was a very intimate show. Uh, the people who were there were, you know, my buddies who were there said they were making eye contact with Bob. Hey, Jim, have you never been there? Have you never been to the Gerald Ford before? I have not been to a show there, no. It is an amazing venue. It's uh, absolutely beautiful. It's got a little rock garden that kind of separates the two parts of the uh, the lawn. There isn't a bad seat in the house. The backdrop is, you know, pine trees right behind the Vale River. Uh, the sound quality is great. You're allowed to bring your own picnics in, so you can bring wine and cheese and other stuff in. It is literally as cool a spot as you can have. I mean, when I think of, like, the great venues in, in Colorado, like Red Rocks is obviously the prime one, but then you've got, you know, State Bridge and you've got Mishawaka. But you can't overlook, you know, uh, Gerald Ford. I mean, it's, it's right up there, like scenic beauty wise, with like uh, Telluride State um, or Telluride Town Park. Yeah, and I, um, yeah, I heard from the people that were there that the sound was just as good up there as it was at Red Rocks. But I'm glad I didn't go because at 2,500, a lot of people got turned away who didn't have tickets. Tight, tight, tight crowd. I, I want to hear about this Terrapin Suite though, because I, I read about it, and you know, I mean, people don't. I don't think most deadheads really appreciate it. Everybody's got a copy of Terrapin Station somewhere, but you know, how many people really take the time to listen to the whole thing all the way through and really appreciate, you know, the adiciding and all the other parts that make it up? And you know, apparently it was something that you know, while Jerry was around, they just never really had a lot of interest in exploring. And I love the fact that you know Bobby decided to take a crack at it. Yes, it was the big long intro reprise. Uh, no words. Uh, they didn't do the full terrapin. It was uh, the, just the part right up to where the lyrics start. 
Um, so it was very good. They did a Eyes of the World into a Miles Davis song, whose name I'm forgetting right now, uh, Back Into Eyes. It was fabulous, just fab. And, and Tight on Tight, oh my goodness. Bob has that band dialed in. And he looked great. You know what? He, 75 years old, he looked great. 75, that's hard to believe. That's wonderful, though. That, look, that's great news, right? I'm glad they sound good, but just as importantly, I'm glad they look good and that they're having a good time because that's going to inspire them to go out and, you know, keep playing and go everywhere that they can. And, uh, you know, now I just get all excited about Dead & Company and, uh, you know, all, all the other opportunities this summer to see them in all the different forms again. Yeah, my next show will be the last weekend of this month. Uh, there's going to be three widespread panic shows. I'll be going to the Sunday matinee. Wonderful. Very nice. So, yeah, well, it's good to know that they're back, too. Rob, did you have something? Yeah, Jim, yeah I was going to say, I don't think it was a Miles Davis tune. I think they played Marvin Gaye's What's Going On as the song you're thinking of. There you go. There you go. Yep, thank you. And, and by the way, for all you out there listening, um, definitely check out uh, Bob Weir's Twitter feed. Because not only does he have all the um, the set list posted, but he also has just fantastic shots uh, from both Vale and from Red Rocks, uh, as well as a bunch of pictures of his new training regiment to get ready for Dead and Company tour. But you know, Bobby, for a guy that's uh, you know born in nineteen um, you know forty six, he's in pretty darn good shape these days. So uh, definitely, you know, like he's getting ready for the tour, and it certainly looks like he's having fun out there on the road again. Good for him. Yeah, here's a little a quick funny story from Red Rocks is. Uh, my son Jack said, hey, you ever seen a picture of a Monet Weir? She's like my age and she's really beautiful. So he shows me a picture of her on his phone, public, you know, photo. And then we look up and there she's walking across the stage. Okay. Right. It's out there supporting her father. and Very good. And I, I don't know if she was the one, but that's still my favorite picture of Bob Weir, the society picture of him taking his daughter to the debutante ball. And he's wearing a full black tuxedo with white gloves on. I thought, oh, my goodness, look at that, Bob Weir. <laughs> yeah, I think Chloe Weir was uh, with him uh, over the last couple shows as well. You know, Jim, talking about how tight they were playing and how good they sound, uh I think makes a perfect segue for us into uh, the uh, uh, our, our main topic for today, as far as the Grateful Dead is concerned, and that is uh, revisiting for a few minutes the uh, Grateful Dead show uh, from June twenty third, nineteen seventy four. Uh, so we're we're almost matching up right here with uh, with the day of the show. The nineteen seventy four shows I think tend to get overlooked, guys, because. 73 was such a milestone year for them. 75, they were on hiatus. 76, they were just getting back. And then 77 was another milestone year. But 1974 had some great shows. Uh, They had the Wall of Sound in full swing. And, um, you know, night after night, they were just going out and laying it down. And I remember reading uh, David Lemieux talking about how it was that he came to select this show uh, to be a Dave's Picks release. And he talks about... You know, he was always looking for, he had, he had gotten into the 1974 shows and he was looking for uh, what he considered first to be the best shows of 1974. And then when he found those, he went and he separated those out into a subgroup of shows from 1974 that could be considered the best of all time. And uh, this inevitably was one of them that he got to. And, uh, you know, he raves about it and uh, and, and rightfully so. It's just uh, a tremendous example, I think, of a full 1974 Grateful Dead, totally clicking on all cylinders, uh, touching on everything that, you know, makes them great and that, you know, all the reasons why we love them. And uh, 
I love the fact that, um, you know, right in the middle of the first set, Jerry took the time to throw in a version of Let It Rock, which is a standard, you know, Garcia band tune. And um, I love it when he would bring some of his stuff into the uh, in with the boys every now and then. And the To Lay Me Down is, you know, that kind of almost brings tears to your eyes. It's just it's it's that sweet. Thoughts? Well, yes, I certainly like 1974. I've listened to a lot of 74 and then it's rock solid. It's, it's right there. Um, I, I have this particular show, and I, I like it. Um, I'll date myself when I say that was the month I graduated from high school. But, um, yeah, wonderful show. I'm a big fan of Weather Report Suite. That's one of my fav bo favorite Bob show, uh, Long. Usually it's a first set ender, and uh, I really enjoy the Weather Report Suite. Uh, what is, how's it go? Her song is the latch on the morning door, right? Yep. It's... Uh... It's, it's great stuff. And, and and Let It Grow, of course, you know, we've all known and loved for years. And I've always, I'm, I'm still in pursuit of my first weather report suite. So I, I assume I'll catch it one of these days if I get out and see enough of Bobby or, or the other ones or um, Dead & Co. But, uh, you know, for me, that was, that was, that's like the epitome of Bobby's songwriting. Just beautiful. Did the Grateful Dead do weather report suite at Red Rocks? And I think one of the other things, Larry, when uh, Dave Lemieux picks, you know, what he's going to put out there, the other thing is also based on what the sound quality was of whoever was recording the show. And the one thing I know Dave has said about this particular show is that Kid Candelero just absolutely killed it at the board that night. And the mix that they had to work from was just so strong that, you know, very little work needed to be done to clean it up to get it to where it is now. So, you know, a lot of the reason we always think of like the Spring 77s as being so great is because Betty Cantor did such a great job recording those. Uh, and there's certain ones that Kid Candelero Kid Candelero did as well, that, um, you know, even if you had that tape and you're trading it back, you know, pre-Dick's Picks or Dave's Picks, you know, it was already in the rotation. So I had the, uh, the this Miami show for years and wore that tape out because the sound quality was always so good on it. That's a great point, Rob. And I think <clears throat> that, uh, you know, in all the discussions about the dead and what makes great shows, <clears throat> so much of the focus is on the boys and their performance. And there's probably just not quite enough attention given to the people who really make sure, you know, that the sound that, that we hear that, that, that gets out to the rest of us uh, is so tight and so good and so solid. Um, and yes, uh, Dave had a lot to say about that with respect to this show. I think that's absolutely right. And, um, you know, it, it, it is just wonderful to hear. Uh, the, the wall of sound, you know, is, is just this epic thing that, uh, to me, uh, you know, is, 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 is doubly enticing, right? Because on the one hand, it's, it's apparently cranking out just the, the sound that you can only get, what was it, I think 500 individual speakers or something like that. Um, and, and so you get amazing sound, but it, it's a visual effect too. When you're sitting there in the audience and you look up and you just see this monster wall of speakers behind these guys, I can only imagine, uh, you know, what the feeling must have been like that, you know, to actually be there and to see it. Sure, and have you... Um heard uh big steve Parrish's uh opinions on the wall of sound what did he have he was the guy they had to set it up and take it down every night so it was i'm sure they had different thoughts about it yeah they went to the band at some point and said we cannot keep doing this it's killing us to set this up and take it down it was just absolutely you know physically impossible to keep it up and uh, that's why they ended up doing away with it one, one of the reasons it was just too cumbersome well, I, I had heard that they actually had two walls of sound and that they would hop skip every show so unit a would be at this show and then skip a show so they could always have an extra day 
to set up and an extra day to tech to take down. So, you know, they must have realized that as well. But look, leave it to the Grateful Dead to come up with, you know, the, mas- the most amazing sound system, but, you know, the most uh, difficult and, and impractical to try and take around and then just say to their crew, yeah, go ahead and deal with it, guys. Well, I think they also took it to Europe in 1974. And that's when the uh, the road crew and Steve Paris really burned them out. I can imagine. Um, one of the favorite parts uh, of this show, and I think we have a clip on this, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Dan Humiston, is uh, this amazing jam, guys, that, that comes towards the end of the second set. Um, and the dead launch into Dark Star. And instead of ever really getting to lyrics... They just take it to another level with a, about a 17, 18-minute jam that's just unbelievable in and of itself. And it's followed by an equally incredible Spanish jam. And just as an aside, you know, how many bands other than the Grateful Dead actually have names for their jams? But, you know, just, just, just to throw that out there. But what, what really makes this great is that magical point where we go from the Dark Star jam into the Spanish jam. We can't talk about it. Dan, talk, turn it up a little bit for a minute. That's amazing, and I think the uh, the thing I love about it is just really how um, on tempo the drumming is in the background of that. So it's you know not only the Spanish guitar playing with Garcia, but it's just the really really even almost trap drumming that you're hearing coming out of what sounds like Billy out of that, which is um, you know it's such a nice when you've got a 17 minute dark star and you're already kind of deep in outer space and then you just sort of tuck in a Spanish jam coming out of it. Uh, it's one of my favorite parts about that show. Oh, there's no doubt. And, and you know, I joke about them giving the, the jams names, but they do because they have this distinctive style. And uh, the Spanish jam has always been one of my favorites. And, and, and that, that Spanish guitar that Garcia goes into is great. And just to tack onto your point, you're absolutely right, Rob. I'm listening to it and I just get completely lost in Dark Star. I know the Spanish jam is coming because I've listened to it enough times, but you get lost in the Dark Star and all of a sudden he hits you with that first note of the, of the Spanish jam, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 that's where he's going. And it's, it's, it's as exciting and as new and as smooth every time, and I think, you know, that's just really a credit to the quality of music that they were putting out at that time. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think that, uh, you know, 74, as you said, does get overlooked, but I think there's parts of 74 that, you know, outside just the wall of sound, outside of the weather reports... But, you know, that was really when U.S. Blues got revamped as well into being U.S. Blues instead of Wave That Flag. And there was a handful of other things from, from 74 that just really made it a unique, a unique year. But the, uh, the sort of off-tempo slowed down on a lot of things we were seeing that year, whether it was the Delay Me Downs or some of the others. Uh, the China Dolls, they are just a really, really sort of lazy, slow pace in 74. That was really, really fun. I mean, the, uh, the, even the eyes of the worlds then were, were just, you know, really, really chill. I agree. Now, something else that was going on a lot in 1974, or at least a few times, and, and that's captured on this uh, show and on this uh, this album, by the way, folks, this is all available on Dave's Picks, uh, v- Volume 34, uh, for people who want to 
have an opportunity to listen to it, and you should. Um, sea Stones. And Sea Stones was the, the musical invention of a guy named Ned Langan. Ned was a, uh, a keyboard player, um, played with the dead occasionally. Um, but he decided he was going to put out an album of, I don't know what you would call it, ambient mood type music uh, that's, to me, just the Grateful Dead space on steroids. Uh, you know, it's kind of the way that I hear it. And for a few shows in 74, about eight or nine shows, maybe 10 shows, he and Phil would step out uh, towards the end of the intermission and almost as a prelude into the second set, they would do this Sea Stones. And this one lasts just under 10 minutes long. And, and, and I don't know about you guys, but you know, at the risk of sounding very undead-like, uh, I, I never really got into it. I never really appealed to me. And it, it always just kind of I, I, I want to say I almost found it a little abrasive sometimes, you know, when you're just sitting there kind of mellowing out and all of a sudden it really, you, you really have to be in the mood to be able to listen to something like this. What do you guys think? Well, there is a Sea Stones album. Ned Langan did put out an album called Sea Stones. And really the, the list of musicians who came and played on that album with him is amazing. Besides the dead, he had uh, some of the guys from Crosby, Stills and Nash and um, uh, a number of other really uh, big musicians at the time who came in and played instruments for him uh, as he was capturing all these sounds. So, you know, maybe in that context, if you, if you have the album and you're listening to it and, you know, I don't know, maybe if you were at, at a show on the right night and, you know, you had the right things flowing around through your brain, it might appeal to you in a different way. But, I don't know. It, it, it just seemed kind of loud to me, and it didn't last too much longer after 1974. So, uh, you know, apparently it didn't have a big uh, staying life with the uh, with the crowd there either. Yeah, it was never my scene at all. I always thought the sea stones was just a little a little too abrasive uh, as well. So, with, with all the other like really cool melodic things they were doing at the time, uh, it didn't really seem to fit with with kind of the rest of where the the band was moving. And the last thing that I'll say about this show, and it has to be the last thing because otherwise we'll all be here talking about it all night and we can easily do that um the artwork that comes with the uh, packaging is great because it has some fantastic pictures of the boys on stage and this is jerry during the prime clean shaven face era where he just has the big mutton chop sideburns he looks i mean almost almost scarily skinny and you know with this big mop of hair and, and, a, and a totally clean shaven face and it's it's such a unique look. It's 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 so different than the almost like than the soft, gentle Jerry that we're all used to with the with the big bushy beard. Whether it was still you know uh, darker after it turns white, um, but you know I it, maybe someday you know if we ever have a chance, if we're ever lucky enough to talk to uh, anybody in the Garcia family, we might be able to go and revisit the tales of you know Jerry's razor blade. But uh, uh, it just always whenever I see this and I look at it, it, it just always strikes me. It's, it's like it's a different guy up there until you, you know, stop looking and listen to the guitar and hear him sing. So. Yes, Dave's Picks 34, the High Life Fronton. Uh, and for those of you that don't know what a High Life Fronton is, at the risk of embarrassing myself, High Life is a game that is played, uh, I believe it's a Cuban-originated uh, game. It's played very heavily in Miami. Uh, it's played with gambler. It's a gambling game in these arenas where, uh, not unlike, I think, paddle ball, but the, 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 the participants wear these big, huge woven baskets on the end of their hands and the, the hard rubber ball comes off the wall and they pick it and in one motion spit it back out and the ball goes 100 miles an hour or whatever and the fans sit behind 
um, shatterproof glass and sit there and watch it, and they 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 bet on the activity. I've never seen it. I've I've just heard about it. Uh, but apparently, the the fronton or the court where the game is played that that became the location for the show, and uh, why not? They've played everywhere else. And I think they played there more than once. They may have. They may One have. of the early um, Dick's picks from Miami. I think Dick's picks three. Okay. So I have been to a highlight match or two. Uh, there's actually a, a highlight place in, um, believe it or not, Milford, Connecticut for a long time that was actually relatively large, and there was you know, multiple highlight games uh, every day. And then there's also one in Tijuana, Mexico. So I've been to both of those, and I can tell you that of all the, uh, quote, sports out there, it's probably the most corrupt game I've ever seen played because uh, all the betting happens where you're betting on a player and you're betting on whether or not that player is going to stay on the court and who's going to come in and you know, play after them. So it's, uh, you know, if, if a player decides that he wants to throw the game or wants to set it up so that, you know, the next person that's better than they are, it, it, from everything I've ever read about a highlight, it's so easy to manipulate, and the gangsters were all over that one. Okay. So it had a little, you know, rebel spirit to it, you know, as good a place as any for the boys to set up shop and, you know, crank out one of their best shows of 1974. Well, I've got to say, you know, it's, it's rare that we don't have a guest these days, guys. It's actually really nice once in a while, just the three of us to get together and talk about music and talk about cannabis. Uh, but with that, I think we've got a whole slate of really interesting guests coming up over the next few weeks, as well as I think a lot more, you know, stories we're going to have of going out and seeing some live music now that uh, music is back. But, um, you know, really excited for some of the, the shows upcoming. And, uh, again, it's nice to, to be out there um, on Clubhouse again. So for all of you that are out there listening, we, we appreciate you joining us on Clubhouse. And please do spread the word. Um, I'll just say from a personal level, you know, we actually get the benefit of seeing how the show is performing in terms of downloads and streams. And we want to say thanks to all of our audience out there because we've really seen just a noticeable uptick in the amount that uh, the people are tuning in to listen to this fun little project of ours. So thank you to all of you out there that, uh, that are tuning in, and please do continue to spread the word because we love doing it, and we'll continue to do it as long as you know, people are interested in hearing what we have to say. Absolutely, Rob. I think that's, those are all good points. Uh, we do have some great guests coming up next week. We're going to be uh, lucky enough to have a gentleman named Robert Johnson. Robert is a, uh, an attorney based in Chicago. He was general counsel at McDonald's for a while. He has a group now called the Solomon Consulting Group. Um, but I think what really makes Robert uh, a great guest for our show is that he is one of the real leaders in Chicago in terms of helping and supporting uh, the social equity candidates. And he's made it a real mission for himself uh, to go out there and support as many of the social equity candidates as he can to help improve their chances uh, of getting licenses that are being awarded in the state of Illinois. And uh, we're very excited about that. So uh, Robert will join us next week and we'll have a chance to ask him some questions and uh, I would strongly encourage our listeners to, to tune in for that one. I think that you'll find uh, a lot of things you may not uh, have fully known or understood about social equity and uh, find out some things about Robert that you'll really like. Well, I, for one, am looking forward to it. So, Larry, thanks for another great week, and uh, enjoy your, your coming week. And we'll see you on the other side for another fun episode of the Grateful Dead Cannabis Show. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Jim. Thank you to our producer, Dan Humiston. And thank you, as always, to all of our listeners. We will look forward to talking to you guys again next week on the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Enjoy your cannabis responsibly.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Tune into a major journey podcast today, where guests take listeners on journeys and immerse themselves in the roller coaster ride both in and out of the cannabis space that brought them to where they are today. Throughout our conversations, guests share valuable lessons that they've learned along the way that listeners can use to empower growth both in their personal and professional lives. Check out A Major Journey today on all major podcast platforms.